Hey, this is Greg Kokel, author of Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions and the Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. And you're listening to Is He a Real One? Hello out there. This is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio, and I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? How are you doing? My name is Veda Hedgeman, and I'm your host of Is He a Real One Radio. If you are listening and watching on YouTube, I want to wave at you. You know, thank you for tuning in. You know, I wish I could see your beautiful face, but you see me, so I'm waving at you. If you're listening on iHeartRadio, we want to thank you so much for tuning in. If you listen on Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or any of the various other platforms that the Lord has allowed this show to be on, we want to welcome you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have a very, very, very special guest and Matt Slick on today. I am super excited to kick off part two of this three-part series where we will be discussing Calvinism, free will, man's choice to reject Jesus, does he have a choice, God's plan, God's sovereignty, etc. Super duper excited. Now, we already completed part one, excuse me, we already completed part one with Elder Michael Holloway, and I believe that I did a solid job in what my intention was, because my Calvinistic viewers hit me up, and I saw a couple emails saying, okay, Veda, you're clearly a non-Calvinist by how you supported them, and then I had some of my non-Calvinistic viewers hit me up the same way, like multiple emails saying, hey, you was really hard on that guy, you know, so, so to God be the glory, you know, the entire intention of this is for us to be, uh, you know, informed Bible readers, Bible teachers, etc., right, you know, so I'll, as I always love to say, you may or may not be reformed, but you should be informed. Amen. So we have two great Bible teachers who know what they're talking about. They've heard all of the objections before. They've taught on this a trillion times, and I'm very blessed to have both of them, and I'm very blessed to have Matt Slick on today. Now, before I put him on screen, I just want to make it clear, just like I made it clear uh, before I got into it with uh, Elder Holloway, that this disagreement, this difference of of interpretation in, 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 in scripture and in God's word. This is not a salvific issue. Both brothers who we are on this program, they both believe in the inerrancy of scripture. They both believe that there are 66 books that belong in God's holy word. We are not saved by works. Salvation is by grace through faith alone and repentance is a necessity. They are firm, con they are firm, excuse me. They are firm confessors of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is a discussion, a debate that has been going on for thousands of years, but again, I want the Is He a Real One radio listeners to be informed. So I'm super duper blessed to have these uh, very informed teachers uh, to share their teaching, to share their knowledge, and to answer the questions and give clarity on scriptures. Before I put Matt Slate on screen, I will say a prayer. Heavenly Father, in the glorious name of Jesus, we thank you so much, Lord God, for this opportunity to gather and to discuss your word, Lord God. You left us 66 love letters, Lord, and you didn't have to do that for us, Lord God, but you did. And we just want to thank you. Lord God, I pray that in this conversation with Matt Slick, that you are glorified, that 
I do not do or say anything that is a distraction from your glory. And same thing with Matt Slick and Michael Holloway, Lord. And I just pray that people who listen to this uh, ultimately hear about you because that is what that is what it's about. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. With that said, I want to introduce the man of the hour, Mr. Matt Slick. Matt Slick, can you uh, say hi to the people? Tell them a little bit about yourself and, you know, and we want to welcome you on. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Matt Slick is my real name, born with it, learned to run as a kid because of that last name. And uh, I'm 63 years old. I'm an ordained minister, seminary graduate, Westminster Seminary, 1991, Master's of Divinity, and uh, started CARM about 20, almost 25 years ago in October. It'll be 25 years. We've had over 100 million visitors. So at carm.org, I just finished my ninth book. And... Um, I'm on, I don't know how many radio stations, between 15 and 20 range, and uh, we're on, been doing radio for 15 years, and uh, ask, answering questions, in fact, I go on a, a thing called Discord, uh, where I just go in, and people just gather, they fire questions at me, I answer questions, I've been defending uh, Reformed theology, Calvinism, for close to 30 years, and I have a uh, um, uh, work I've published called Outlines on Calvinism, and uh, every, total pages is 82 pages just in outline notes and support verses, arguments, and everything. I know the topic pretty well, and I'm very confident about uh, the truth of the five points. And uh, we'll see how, how you guys are after this. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Well, you know, uh, and also, you know, he he, missing car he mentioned CARM.org, C-A-R-M.org, you know, not just for things for, you know, reform theology, but, you know, just general exegesis and when you have questions and stuff. There's a lot of different articles and posts on there, you know, yeah. and I recommend, I, I recommend that for studies. You know, you're working on a, yeah. you're working on a sermon. We have over 6,000 articles there. They're working on it for a long time. And it's not Calvinistic. It's right. apologetic. Yeah. Right. Answering questions, teaching theology. So, yeah. yeah. Amen. So right. with, that said, with that said, with that said, super excited, you know, for you to teach us on today. So I'll just start off with, you know, with, uh, you know, with the basis. Can you explain to us, you know, what is Calvin? What, what is Calvinism? You know, what is Reformed theology? And then we'll get into right. other stuff after that. Well, just like Lutheranism followed Luther, Calvinism followed Calvin. When we say we're Calvinists or Lutheran, we don't mean we worship or serve those guys. It's just unfortunate that through history, a certain theological perspective became known by their um, theological focuses. So Martin Luther started accidentally, but started the Reformation. And then he was in Germany. And then about a generation later, John Calvin uh, wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. The Institutes of the Christian Religion is probably the most important book written in the past thousand years, dead serious. And the Puritans uh, were Calvinists who came over, uh, not to necessarily to escape persecution, that, that was a little bit of the case. They came over here to start a new Christian nation and they were reformed in their theology, which just basically, take Calvinism reformed theology for the most part, it's just identical. And um, so our, uh, our culture, our country, has the principles of Reformed theology woven into its uh, uh, laws and culture, economy. A lot of people don't know that, but um, because of the stuff that, that Reformed theology brings to the table. But it can be summarized in basically the five points. Uh, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, 
perseverance of the saints. So T for to total depravity means that a person, any person, except for Jesus, of course, is touched by sin in all parts of what he is. And he's not as bad as he can be, but everything is affected by sin, heart, soul, mind, body, everything. You, unconditional election, means that God from the foundation of the world elected who's to be saved. And he did not base it on foreseen knowledge. That would be heresy. He did not base it on what people would do under certain counterfactuals. That would be heresy. But did it unconditionally based on his character, what's in him. L is for limited atonement, that Jesus only bore the sins of the elected ones and not this did not bear the sin of everybody who ever lived. I, irresistible grace, a lot of people get this one wrong. Irresistible grace means that at the time of salvation, at regeneration, that nobody can successfully resist that grace of God in the regenerative work. And P, perseverance of the saints, that once you're in, you're in. Uh, God doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't lose you. He doesn't forsake you. And that you're eternally uh, secure in Christ. That's the, those are the basics. And we, don't deny, we do not deny free will either. A lot of people think we do. We don't. That was, that's literally my first question after, after that introductory. So mm -hmm. how does free will play into it? And we'll get into what biblical free will is, but I'll just let you kind of explain it. And if I want anything to be clarified after that, I'll just, right. I'll, I'll just jump in. Well, as I always teach people, you have to um, define your terms first. Uh, what does okay. free will mean? And so uh, tell you what, Veda, man, I, let me set you up. All right. This isn't about up. me. I'll, I'll see how gonna, the question goes. This isn't about me. I'm going to set you up. Though. Let's see how you answer because both of you will answer the same way. Okay. All right. Would you agree with me or would you agree with the statement that free will is the ability to make choices, either good or bad, that you can do either good or bad, and you're freely able to choose which ones you want? That's what free will is. Uh, based on that definition, I would... I wouldn't see a problem with that. It does sound like right. there's probably a caveat to it, you know, there is. but sure. Now, the problem here is that what most people do without realizing it is they adopt a humanistic principle and humanistic philosophy, and they judge truth, and in this case, a definition of free will based upon their experiences and their preferences. But you see, the problem with that definition is, is that it excludes God. God is a standard of all righteousness. He says, be holy for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. So therefore, if we're going to define what free will is, we have to define it in such a manner that's, that God is the standard of what free will is. So God is not able to choose sin. He cannot choose to do evil. He's still consistent with his own nature, though, which is nature is holy. And he can only do that which is holy and good and right. And yet he at the same time has free will, but he's not able to choose to do anything bad. We can. So how do we develop a definition which can include God as well as ourselves? because we're made in his image, Genesis 1.26. So what we would say is, just to cut to the chase, is that free will is the ability to make choices that are consistent with your nature, that are also not forced. Okay. And that's a generic definition, and that works. And that would include God. So he's not forced by anything to do anything. He's freely able to do whatever he desires, but he's also required to operate in a manner consistent with his holiness and his goodness and his love and compassion and justice and mercy, because all of those in divine simplicity, not parts, but that's what God is. And so that we have to go with that definition. And then it applies to us as well. So we're free to do and choose whatever we want to free be, uh, to choose to do. And, but we have to 
choose things that are in, in a manner consistent. Oh man, my ears are consistent with what we are. Okay. So I, for example, I can will to choose to flap my arms and fly to the moon. I can try to do it, but I can't do it. Okay. But I have the free will to be able to want to do it. And that's because I can conceive of it and I'm able to apprehend it. So mm -hmm. you can't choose to do something you can't even conceive of or not aware of. There's some other information about free will. And then we get some other caveats about it, but uh, that's what free will basically is. And Calvinists do not deny free will. Okay. Can you teach us how that definition of that teaching that you just gave us on free will that you agree with, how does that work with the predestination teaching sure. that is in, in Calvinism? Sure. No problem. Would you agree with me that Jesus had free will? Uh, I, I would prefer you to just answer the questions. Is, is that possible? Yeah. Jesus had okay. free will, right? No one okay. forced him to do anything, right? And yet Jesus says in John 5, 19, he says, uh, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees a father doing. Wait a minute. He can't do anything of his own self. He also mm -hmm. said that uh, he could do nothing of his own initiative in John 5, 30. Well, we know that Jesus has free will. We can't say he's, he doesn't have free will. He's a human being. And what's interesting is when we look at Jesus as the model of what free will is, we know that he has two natures. He's both divine and human. He still is a man right now with two natures. And we call this the hypostatic union. Right. And so since the attributes of both natures are ascribed to the single person, that's called the communicatio idiomatum, we can see that the single person has a will. And yet right. Jesus as a man could only do what he saw the father do and could do nothing of his own initiative, yet at the same time, he had uh, free will. Uh -huh. But we know that the father sent the son from the foundation of the world. The eternal covenant spoken of in Hebrews 13, 20, where the father would elect, the son would redeem, and the Holy Spirit would apply the redemptive work. So the son came to do the will of the father. So we see the biblical perspective already that free will is compatible with God's sovereignty and predestination because Jesus Christ, our example, is the one who had free will and yet was also predestined, sent by the Father to do whatever the Father wanted him to do, and yet he had free will. So if people were to say, well, we don't have free will, well, what about Jesus? And I was in a debate a couple of three months ago with a guy and uh, who did not, anyway, long story short, I've used this before, and it trips people up hmm. because what are you going to do with this? You have to agree that f human free will and God's sovereign predestination are compatible. Now, that's, that's point one. I can expand on that, but, but there you go. Awesome. So, and, and also, you know, if you're listening, also, just so you know, Matt, you know, the, the Lord has, you know, blessed the, this particular program to where people from, you know, theologians to just lay people who are kind of getting into stuff, listen to this program. So sometimes like if you say something and I kind of try to repeat it or summarize it, or before you get too deep into something, I may uh, ask you to stop for a hot second, just so I could kind of lay the foundation and make sure everybody's following. If anyone, if anyone is listening and you've heard him describe free will just now, and you still don't feel like it's totally clicking, don't worry, because before we get out of here, there are some scriptures that uh, I'm going to throw at Matt Slick, and I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with his articles and his books and his uh, debates and stuff, so it's going to make 
more if it's not already making sense to you uh when he responds to some of those scriptures uh, i believe it'll start clicking a, a, a little more so so awesome so uh can we talk about some of your favorite scriptures you know that support uh, the calvinistic view of scripture i have a couple that i would like to highlight oh, but, sure but but do you have any that uh, that are your favorite that come to mind oh yeah uh colossians 2 14 is one of the killer verses and uh, I use it I all the time. Throw that at you. <laughs> I was certainly going to throw that one at you. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a very very solid uh, su support of at least three of the the five points of Calvinism. So Can we read it real quick. Okay, okay go, ahead. go ahead. Okay, uh, uh, I have the ESV. Is that fine, or you want me to pull something else? I, I use the NASB because that's what Paul used, but the ESV will, will work. Okay, so it says in the ESV, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Teach us how this is supportive of, uh, Calvin, okay. of the Calvinistic view. So what the ESV says right before that is, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And that, that's a pluperfect, in the, uh, excuse me, it's a... Uh, 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 it's an ing. I, boy, I just, boy, I can't believe I'm uh, bougieing on that word right now. Doesn't make any difference. A participle. So it's a participial form. So he canceled the certificate of debt. Uh, excuse me. He, excuse me. He uh, forgave us, having forgiven us all of our sins by canceling the record of debt. So he canceled the record of debt. The question then becomes, what's the record of debt? Because this is critical. Now, in the Greek, the word record of debt is a single word. It's kerographon, care, hand, graphe, writing. It means a handwritten IOU of legal indebtedness. Okay. Now, that's an interesting word for Paul to use right there. Now, the NASB says of that verse, it says the uh, certificate of debt. And this one, the ASV says the record of debt. That's fine. Well, what? What debt? Well, it's interesting is that sin is breaking the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. And Jesus says, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And in uh, Matthew 6, 12, he says, forgive us our debts. In the parallel of Luke eleven four, 4, he says, forgive us our sins. So Jesus equates sin with legal debt. Okay. He does. And so that's, that's, uh, that's what he says. Jesus also said on the cross, John, in John 19, 30, he says, uh, to telestai, it is finished. The word to telestai has been found handwritten uh, in a different handwriting, <clears throat> on some ancient tax receipts signifying a legal debt's been paid. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we know that what Jesus did was fulfill the law and did everything that was right, and he bore our sin in his body on the cross. How could he bear our sin? If it's a legal debt, legal debts can be transferred. You can buy someone else's debt. Legal debts are transferable. All right. So, since he says, having forgiven us all our transgressions by canceling the record of debt, the record of debt would be our sin debt. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a question. Can we be held responsible for a debt that does not exist? The illustration I use is we go to a restaurant and, and um, I, I'm going to buy you a dinner and, and uh, I forget my wallet, right? right. Well, it, it's, it's my debt because that's what you agreed to. But you're a cool guy, and you know, hey, it happens. People forget their wallets. And you're really cool, and you go, don't worry about it, Matt. And, and you flip down a card, and, and you pay my debt. Okay, and I'm apologetic, and then I owe you, now I owe you two dinners, you know. <laughs> right. And so, um, so anyway, so debts are transferable. Now, the manager of the restaurant comes up after the debt has been paid, and he says to me, 
hey, you got to pay your debt. You go, it's been paid. He goes, where? Was the receipt? Oh, it's okay. The record of debt has been paid. There is a receipt proves it. He cannot hold me responsible for it. Now, there's another illustration I want to give because this is going to open it up. They call, I call him coma man. He's a man on his way to the bank to pay his mortgage. He does it on the first day of the month, and he's been doing it for years and years. He likes the, the travel. He likes to do that. On the way there, he gets in a car accident. He ends up in a coma for a couple of months. And while he's in the coma, a philanthropist goes in and pays his debt. Says, I heard about this guy. I'm going to pay his entire mortgage off. Now, the man doesn't even know it. The man's in a coma. Is his debt paid? Yes, it is. Can he be held responsible for that debt? No, he cannot. He wakes up and miraculous recovery. He ends up going to the bank, got to pay his mortgage. I'm behind, I'm behind. They get the account and they go, oh, it's been paid. He said, well, who did it? He goes, that's anonymous. Well, wait a minute. I, I don't like that. I pay my own debts. Here, take my money. You can't. Because if the bank were to take that money, that would be wrong. It's already been paid. All right. Mm -hmm. The certificate of debt, the SIN debt has been canceled. It's been paid. Who do you pay it for? If he paid it for everybody who ever lived, then nobody can go to hell. Whether or not they accept that payment is irrelevant because there's no debt to be held against their account. If it's the sin debt that's there, and if he paid it for everybody, then nobody can be judged to damnation, period. You don't even have to have faith. You don't have to have anything because there is no sin, there is no sin to be held against them. Logically, this requires limited atonement, that he only canceled the sin debt for those whom the Father gave to the Son, which is what Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father has given me will come to me. There's a set group of people given to him. Well, this demonstrates limited atonement. We can go through and argue, and I can close all kinds of problems that people try and raise against it. It shows that he, he um, limited atonement, that he canceled the certificate of debt for the, for the elect, which also su supports unconditional election. It also supports the perseverance of the saints, because if it's canceled, it's canceled, period. You cannot be held responsible, so therefore you can't lose your salvation, because all your sin debt is forgiven, because it says having forgiveness all our trespasses in right. the previous verse. So we can't lose our salvation. So this proves that as well. So this is just that's one, of my, one of my favorite verses. Sure, and and so so to kind of summarize that a little bit you know so he you i, I love your your restaurant bill analogy matt you know so you know there, there's a restaurant bill it's already paid you know so if some if you already paid that for me i don't have to pay it again this colossians 2 14 is saying that that bill is already paid except that this bill isn't for uh some hot wings that might taste delicious taste delicious that bill is for my destructive sin that i have been doing uh th that i have been doing you know uh, in my humanity and jesus paid that price now matt uh a non-cal a non-calvinist uh however you I, I i try not to say arminianism because you know sometimes people don't yeah. agree yeah agree with everything yeah. in that so i'll just say like non-calvinist but a person who doesn't hold to a calvinistic view Right. they'll say that okay that restaurant analogy is all good and fine however there 
However, there is a different, um, there is an additional uh, point to it as far as our repentance, you know, so Colossians 2.14 may say what Jesus did to pay the bill, but there is another thing that is necessary, which is our repentance. And if we just say that 2.14 is the whole story, that's saying that we're saved and is skipping our repentance part. How would you respond to that? First of all, the Bible never says repentance is necessary for salvation. The Bible does say that we're justified by faith. Romans 3.28, Romans 5.1, Romans 4.1 through 5 talks about this. You can go to Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.21. It never says you have to repent in order to be saved. It doesn't say it's okay. a requirement. A lot of people make that mistake. Should we repent? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Total depravity is really important here at this point because the Bible says, I'll give the references the first time, but then uh, I'll just quote them late, later. But the Bible sure. says of the unregenerate person, the unsaved person, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that he cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot receive them. Cannot. Romans 6, uh, 14 through 20 says that the unbeliever is a slave of sin. Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12, the unbeliever is a uh, not able to pursue God, cannot find God, is a hater of God, and can do no good. Ephesians 2.1, by nature, uh, he is um, dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.3, by nature, a child of wrath. In uh, Jeremiah 17.9, it says that, uh, that the, uh, the unbeliever's best works, righteous deeds, are used menstrual cloths, filthy rags, before yeah. God. So, the unbeliever is a slave of sin, a hater of God, can do no good, cannot receive spiritual things, his best works are filthy rags. How does someone like that repent of his sin? He cannot. Okay. A lot of people don't understand, though. They think that they, they can. Well, repentance is compliance with the law. Now, think about this. This is a dangerous proposition a lot of people say. You have to repent in order to be saved. That, I could say that that's a heresy. And they'll go, wait a minute, that's, that's false. No, I go, hear me out first. Because if if a person is lying and you and I are witnessing to him and, uh -huh. he's a, and he's a liar and he's a thief, we would say you need to not lie and not steal. What we're doing is saying comply with the Ten Commandments, right? We're saying comply with the Ten Commandments. Is compliance with the Ten Commandments necessary to be saved? Is keeping the law necessary for salvation? Hmm. We don't do that. We don't right. say we keep the law to be saved. Should we repent? Yes. God commands everyone everywhere to repent, Acts 1730. Hmm. But we have to understand that it's not our compliance with the law that saves us or can contributes to be saved. So hmm. when some people say you have to repent in order to become a Christian, you're teaching heresy. But they don't realize they're teaching heresy. You have to trust Christ. But then people don't realize this. God grants that we believe, Philippians 129. He grants that we believe. And it says in John 6, 28, 29, they said, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on whom he has sent. And it says in 1 Peter 1, 3, that we're caused to be born again. In John 1, 13, we're born, it doesn't say born again, but that's the context who, who receives him, verse 12, and who's born not of the will of man or of the will of flesh, but of God. You're born not of your own will, born again, not of your own will. We, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed, Acts 13, 48, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, we have been chosen for salvation, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, that he chose us before the foundation of the world that would be holy and blameless. And in him, he, in love, he predestined us. The Bible clearly, clearly teaches all this stuff. And it says, I can go on and on, all, I got all kinds of verses we can talk about this. And Jesus says something very, very interesting in John 6, 65. You cannot come to me unless it's been granted to you from the Father. 
You can't come. This the Father grants it to you. He right. also grants repentance, 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2.25, that uh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be gentle to all and, and answering people, if perchance God would grant them repentance. So what we, I'm trying to do is tell people, and I don't mean this in an insulting way with people, stop thinking like a humanist, start thinking biblically. Don't mm-hmm. think that, the, that, don't judge theology by what you feel. I made the choice and therefore I know. Don't do that. That's, that's a false way to do it. You did make the choice because God enabled you to make the choice. We have in Calvinism something called regeneration preceding faith. And I know I'm talking a lot, but this is really important. It's a kind of a nutshell. Regeneration uh-huh. precedes faith, but you got to understand what we mean by that. We don't mean it temporally. We mean it logically. So let me explain. If we say that someone, I'll just use five seconds as an example for temporal. Let's just say someone's a believer before they're regenerate for five seconds. The problem with that is we would have someone who's a believer for five seconds who's not regenerate. That doesn't make any sense. Just using this as an illustration. So let's reverse it. Someone who's regenerate for five seconds and then five seconds later becomes a believer. Then you'd have a regenerate person for a period of time who's not a believer. There's logical problems there. What we say about, lo- about this is logical priority, and here's the illustration. I flip on a light switch, the electricity is instantaneously in the light bulb, and the light is instantaneously there. They're simultaneous, but one of them is logically prior. What that means is the electricity must be there in order for light to be there. It's not the case that light must be there in order for electricity to be there. So we say the electricity is logically prior, and causes the light, but they're simultaneous. Regeneration is logically prior, and faith is the necessary result that we actually do, we actually do believe because we're enabled to, because God grants that we do in his regenerative work in us. So we have free will at that point to choose Christ. Awesome. So I, I want to part uh, at, at uh, a comment that you made. Uh Oh, shucks, man. It, it sounded really good. I really wanted to park there. Uh, we're talking about. <laughs> um, okay, we're talking about Colossians 2.14. Uh-huh. Talking about Colossians 2.14. It is coming back to me. We're talking about Colossians 2.14. Um, okay, right. So the question was, are we skipping over repentance, you know, with, with oh. Colossians 2.14? And, and your response is, can, can you say that in a nutshell again, just really quick? Well, what, you know, what did Paul do with Colossians 2.14? Did Paul require repentance in there? Right. It, not in Colossians 2.14, but a person who doesn't hold a Calvinistic view of Scripture will say, well, that's, uh, that's one Scripture. We're not looking at the, the total thing. So here's, here's my question. Here's my question I'd like to uh, hear, hear you uh, give us an answer to. So in Acts 16.30-31, you know, when the jailer uh, says, I'll just read it. And this is Acts 16.30-31. After he brought them out, he said, this is the jailer talking to Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So how does this scripture work with what you just said about, uh, about there not needing to be uh, repentance or, or anything like that because it's already done and elect? Well, the, the, the pericope, a pericope is a section of scripture, small or big, it's any length, okay, a pericope. In the pericope you, you quoted, repentance isn't even mentioned. The issue right. is justification by faith. 
So the Bible says in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now check that out, apart from the works of the law. The works of the law is summarized in Matthew 22.37 and 39 as love God and love your neighbor, which he's quoting, Matt, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 respectively. And so the Bible says we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law, apart from loving God and apart from loving our neighbor. This is compliance with the law. What does it say here in Acts 16? And after they brought him out, he said, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. That's what it says is necessary. That's the answer. You've got to believe. You have to believe. And repentance comes with the regeneration that we're, we're there. So <clears throat> when, uh, when, for example, I used to, boy, I was into the occult, pornography, and foul language like you wouldn't believe. Yes, but when I got saved, then I repented because I was saved. Not mm. to get saved and not to mm. keep myself saved. And if anybody says, and I'm going to say this directly and seriously, if mm -hmm. any of you listening say you must continue to repent to keep yourself right with God, keep yourself saved, you're a false convert or you don't understand the true gospel and we need to talk. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Now, now, how come in this, uh, you know, in in, in though in that passage that that I quoted, you know, when he said, uh, "Sirs, was what must I do to be saved?" Why didn't they say uh, you're already saved if you are? Uh, why didn't they say you are already saved? You're if you are an an elect chosen by God. Very good question. <clears throat> Election means that a person has been chosen. Hold on, I'm gonna clear my throat here. I'm gonna mute myself. Okay, sorry about that. The word elect and chose and chosen, three basic Greek words, eklegamai, eklege, eklektas. The word for church is ekklesia. We are the chosen ones. So election happens before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Jesus canceled our sin debt at the cross, not when you believe, but when he was crucified. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I could get into federal headship, but there's so much it's all attached, but it doesn't matter. I couldn't confuse everybody. So we're, we're not justified when we are born. We're not justified back then. We're not justified when Jesus died on the cross. Our sin debt is removed at the cross. It's canceled. But you could have an atheist who, who uh, is an atheist his whole life and at 50 years old becomes a Christian. Well, that person was ordained from the foundation of the world to become a Christian by God's sovereign grace. His, all his sins were paid for at the cross back then. But he wasn't saved. We would never say he was saved. He was in a state of damnation, we would say, even though his sin debt had been uh, removed. We call this in theology the now and the not yet. <clears throat> and I can expand on that if you want what that means, the now and the not yet. And you go to Romans 8.30 for that. But what we're saying is that he canceled a sin debt for the elect on the cross. And then when we believe, that's when the, the, uh, the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. That's when we're justified. That's when it ha happens temporally in time. So you can have someone who's not a believer, whose sins have been removed, been, been uh, canceled in that sense. 
And then when he believes, that's when he's justified. Justification means to be declared legally righteous according to the law, where the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to us or imputed to us. That's Philippians 3.9. We have a righteousness that's not our own. So election from the foundation of the world. Jesus canceled the sin debt of the elect. You're born. When you believe, you're justified. That's how it works. Awesome. Awesome. So how does this work with God's love? You know, because often, oftentimes what I'll hear from a person who doesn't hold a Calvinistic view of scripture is that they, they feel like the, the Calvinistic teaching is saying that God didn't love everybody enough to save them. You know, he loved the elect, you know, so it's all for his glory, but he doesn't love those that he did not elect. Otherwise he would, allow them to be in his presence for all eternity. Can you respond to that? Uh, there's a doctrine about God called divine simplicity. We have to understand that God is love, but not all love. He's justice, okay. but not all justice. He's mercy, but not all mercy. We say he's love and just and merciful, etc. All of what he is, is comprises what he is. God does hate. You can go to Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5. He hates those who do iniquity. It's what it says. Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. You go to Romans 9, 9 through 23. And it's not because Jacob or Esau had done anything good or bad, but because of God's choice. And that's Romans 9 is a killer chapter I love to go through. And this is what it says. So God can hate, but he can also love. But he loves the elect with a saving love, but not the non-elect with a saving love. But he does love everybody generically, and that's out of Matthew 5, 43 through 48. We call that common grace where he sheds the light and the rain and all that goodness on everybody. Therefore, be perfect. Your father in heaven is perfect because he's talking about the love that you have for one another and things like that. And you can read through that. And so he loves everybody in a generic sense, but he loves the elect in a salvation sense. But he also hates all who do iniquity and who love unrighteousness. So we got to balance all of those. And this is where it just takes time instead of going through sub points quickly. But um, it does take yeah. a more time to go through it. But and, and you sort of uh, answered this question in how uh, in in how you answered uh, my my last question that I posed. But I still want to ask it this way so you can respond to it. You know, because another thing, another objection to Calvinism might be that the same people who God has called us to love, me and you, you know, we're supposed to love these men and women who God created, they are made in his image. The same people who he called us to love, he doesn't love the same. How do you respond to that? Well, that is that an accurate statement? Because I just said that God does love everybody in that sense. So when someone says that they don't love, God doesn't love them, is that an accurate statement? So when people talk to me about this, I'll ask them, what do you mean by that statement? And then we have to get into it because it can be understood in different senses. But in one sense, he loves everybody. In another sense, he doesn't. Yes, we are called to love because that's what God commands us to do. And we should. Okay. I'll role play a little bit and just provide an answer so you can respond to it. So, so you say, uh, what do you mean by that statement? And I say that he doesn't love them enough to save them from their own sins because he chose not to do so. He could have saved them from their own sin and he chose not to do so. He doesn't love them to do that. That's right. So, so how does that, I'm I'm not following. I'm sorry. So, so how, how does that that work? (laughs) You said it. Okay. So are you saying that he loves them 
he, all right, so he loves them in a certain type of way. He just doesn't love them in a salvific type of way. Is that, right. is that what you're saying? Uh-huh. Okay. You know, John 3, 16, God's love the world. Well, that means all the nations. I can go into that. But he loves, you know, there's a sense in which he loves everyone. But he loves the elect in a different way, in that he loves them in his calling of them and choosing of them to be saved. And we don't know what criteria he has. We don't know. What I do know this. The more I pray for people's salvation, the more people get prayed or get saved. The more we preach the gospel, the more people get saved. Well, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Now, we have a question. Even non-Calvinists would have to acknowledge that God knows all things, 1 John 3, 4, 20, and that he does everything after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. Well, how can our prayers influence God, get more people saved from all eternity if God predestined it? Now, that gets to be a tough question to answer. And there are certain things that nobody can answer. Hmm. But at least the Calvinists can go further down the road of theology than any other group. Hmm. Because, and I've discussed this with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I can ask questions they can't answer. Right. And most every question they ask, I can answer. Not that I'm, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I get all the answers. I understand. Trust me, right. But, you know, yeah. yeah. We can go further yeah. down the road before we say, I don't know. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Um, um, speaking of questions like that, h- how do you respond if someone asks you about uh, Matthew 19, you know, where Jesus said to his disciples, you know, that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why is it harder? Why is it harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And the reason I ask is because a person who does not hold to a Calvinistic view of scripture, they might say, because they have all of this stuff around them, they have access and resources, and they feel like they don't need God, so they'll choose to not bow down to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. So with so, so when Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, why is that the case uh, with the Calvinistic understanding of Scripture? Well, for one thing, because it's true. And if Jesus said that, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we're talking about this guy who had a lot of property, and then uh, Jesus says, leave it and follow me. Uh huh. That's what he was saying. Now, let's just assume the man was not regenerate, all right? So he would be a slave of his sin, and he wouldn't want to give up his property. So he has an extra burden to deal with his own property, where someone who's less, uh, doesn't own as much, would have one less thing to have to deal with in his necessity of coming to Christ. We don't say in Calvinism that God makes robots or that God robotically says, ready, set, you, boop, okay, I'm safe. <laughs> it's not like that. <laughs> right, right. Because Jesus said in John six forty four, he says, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. He draws, he speaks to you. And, um, you know, my salvation was boom, okay? And it was, it was a very dramatic conversion. It really was. I've, I've known people who, they didn't even know they were saved for a while. Oh, hmm. man, I'm just different. It happens that way. Mm, God yeah. works and he draws. We, don't, we Calvinists, we know that God is patient and kind and he draws people. And then at the right time, he just, he works it. And he does. And the same thing here, this guy's got more problems. And God's going to, you know, God doesn't violate our hearts, okay? If, right. you know, if I'm hooked on a, a drug and I want to come to Christ, well, God can snap my fingers. I'm, I'm done. I, I don't have any addiction. Or he can say, you're going to have to work. You get to work for this. You're going to have to, not for salvation, work to get through this, to get to that place where you can just trust 
And maybe at that point when you're at the bottom of the, of the barrel, you'll look up and say, yeah, you have to break your heart. God is like that. A lot of times people think Calvin, the God of Calvinism is some robotic thing, a guy up there with no compassion. Yeah, right, it's not right. how it is. Right. In fact, I'll tell you this really fast. The Presbyterian divines in Scotland and Ireland in that period back in the 1600s, there's a book written about them called um, Scots Worthies. And these guys, hardcore Calvinists, and there's more than one account of these men. They spend eight hours a day for two years at a time in prayer. And they'd go, one guy, I forgot his name, would go down and he'd say, I'm going to go spend time with the Lord in the garden. And people would see someone else walking with him in the garden. There was nobody else there. Hmm. And he says, I was with the Lord. Now, what do you do with that? These are Calvinists. John, I can read you prophecies and charismatic movement in Calvinist wow. guys. It's wow. all documented. Oh, wow. yeah. Oh, yeah. We actually love God and believe he <laughs> draws us. We do. Right, right. Wanna, believe it or not. I'm an right. experiential Calvinist. I believe in all the charismatic gifts and preaching and teaching. And right. just go. Oh, yeah. Awesome. yeah. So. I want to uh, uh, I, I want to throw a verse at you from Romans nine, and then oh, after that, I, yeah, and, and then after that, I want to throw at least uh, two scriptures, depending on how much time we have. I, I don't want to go as long as you want. All right, thank you. So let, let's do Romans nine, and then we'll go over um, two or three scriptures. Sure. You know that uh, non-Calvinists would want to hear you respond to, but sure. Let's start off with Romans nine, and I'm going to throw out fifteen and sixteen. But of course, if you want to put it in context and start at Romans eight, go to all the way to Romans nine, ten, eleven. However you want to answer, it's fine. But let's read uh, Romans nine, fifteen and sixteen, and this says, "For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy." And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or, ex or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You exegete that scripture however you so see sure. fit and teach us what this is saying. I've written many articles on this uh, pericope of scripture. And notice what comes before it. Said to her that older will serve the younger, just as Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. Now, wait a minute. Is that fair? Because I could quote this and I'd say to you, I could say to people, that God just loves one and hates another just because he wants. And you'll go, that's not right. That's not fair. Look what the text says. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. If you raise that objection, it means you understand it. You understand what Paul's teaching now. If you don't raise the same objection, you don't understand what he's saying. Some people say, well, that's just talking about nations. Well, then why is there a complaint? That's if good. you understand, you go, wait a minute, that's not right. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. That means you're getting it. You got That's it. Good. That's why, because Paul raises the thing. Well, then what are we going to say? There's no just God, is there? And he gives you the answer. Oh, I love this. I, at first, when I read this, I go, I don't like this. But now, I love it. For he says to Moses, he goes, I'll have mercy in whom I have mercy. You know, he's, he's, what he's saying is, he's saying this. This is a slick version of the Bible. He's saying, shut up and sit down. Because mm. I'll have mercy on whom? In the Greek, it's singular, individual. I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom? I have compassion. So it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. On who God loves and who he hates is not dependent upon the man, but upon mm. God's mercy. And then, because then it goes on. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up 
to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. He raised up Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a bad guy. Pharaoh was a bad guy. In fact, God predestined in Acts 4, 27, 28, he predestined Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jews, and the Gentiles to crucify Christ, to break law, to do something. He predestined it. That's what it says. That's a whole other thing. But God raised up Pharaoh. God did this so that he could show his, his uh, power through him. And then it says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. Now, that's what a Calvinist would say. Nope, God loves whom he wants, and he hates whom he wants. He softens whom he wants. He, he hardens whom he wants. Well, that's not fair. Great. I'm glad you raised that objection because the next verse says, well, then why does he still find fault for who resists his will? That's not fair. There you go, understanding the text again. And what's hmm. the answer? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same from the same lump one vessel, that's always an individual, for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Mm. This is tough stuff. And I, I can mm. teach it for an hour. I, I went through it mm. slick and quick. I went through it fast. All right. But Amen. here's the thing I say to people. If you read that, those verses, you have to object just like Paul does. Otherwise, you're not understanding it right. But once you do get it to where you, you object, then you got to believe it because now you understand it. That's awesome, man. That, that, that's awesome stuff. Hey, you know what? I actually want to stay in Romans. Can you clarify something for us? Uh, in Romans 5, in, in Romans 5.18, the NASB and the, and, and, the, and the ESV reads it differently. Can yeah. you, uh, so I'm going to read both translations and can you explain why whatever the difference is matters yeah. and why the NASB has it right? Okay. So I'm reading Romans 15, 518. The ESV says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That's the English standard version. The NASB says, so then as though one transgression, excuse me, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Can you, can you explain uh, why the ESV has it wrong and why yeah. it matters in context? It's, this is a very serious uh, text. And a friend of mine who was calling here, I got to call him back, uh, actually talked to the son of one of the major translators. And they, he talked about this particular verse because of the issue I've raised about this verse. And he says, yep, that's, that's correct. And they went through a big thing. But this is what the Greek literally says. The Greek literally says this. Now, there's two sentences joined with a, a compound, uh, a compound uh, joiner. And, and I'll show you. So just think of sentence A and of sentence B. Okay. And what it literally says in the Greek is this. <clears throat> so as through one offense, condemnation to all men. So also, through one righteous deed, into all men to justification of life. What it's literally saying is this. It's saying this. Through one man, th uh, this. This man, this. So sentence A, through one offense, 
condemnation to all men. So also through one righteous deed, justification of life to all men. I'm going to do this again. A and B. A is about Adam. B is about Jesus. Through one offense, that's Adam, mm. condemnation to all men. So also through one righteous deed, justification of life to all men. Mm. Now, wait a minute. This, this is critical. I'm going to go slowly because this is tough for a lot of people because it's, it is. It took me weeks to figure this out. And I go, oh, I get it. <clears throat> so sentence A governs sentence B. Now there's a conjunction. So also A is over B because it says this, through one offense, condemnation to all men. And likewise, so also through one righteous deed. Justification of life to all men. Okay. Now here's a print. There's several things in here that are important. I really want to do a good job on this. People bring to the text mistakes and assumptions. Don't do that. This verse really shook me up years ago, 30 years ago, and caused me to study and open up the door. Now, A says, Adam sin, condemnation to all men. So also, Jesus' sacrifice, justification of life to all men. We don't have a verb in either sentence, but whatever verb we put in A has to also be put in B because they're the same thing. Adam's offense, verb, condemnation to all men. Jesus' sacrifice, verb, justification of life to all men. Because B relates to A. A governs B. I can't, I'll say this again. A governs B, and you'll see why I keep saying A governs B, not B governs A. So we look at, at A. What's the right verb to put in for, for us for English? Through one offense, the NASB says there resulted condemnation to all men. We know that's correct. Romans 3.23, all men sinned. All men are condemned. Right. We know that's theologically correct. Right. Right. Take the verb and drop it down. But you have a problem now. Take the verb and drop it down. So also through one righteous deed or one righteous act, there resulted justification of life to all men. You go, well, wait a minute. Justification means you're saved. We can't have everybody be saved. Right. So what the, the ESV does, the King James, the NIV is they let B govern A. Now, I'm not a universalist. Not everybody's saved. But trust me, you're going you're to discover something. So what the ESV has done is looked at it and know, and the, I'll go to the NIV because uh, the NIV does this too. Or the other King James, King James really messes it up. Therefore, as by one offense, the offense of one judgment came to all men to condemnation. So they try, well, it came to it. It didn't just come to everybody. It resulted, but they're softening it because they know what justification of life to all men means. They, but they know that people go to hell, Mark 3, 29, Matthew 25, 46. So it can't mean that everybody's saved, but they're forgetting something, and I'll show you. And the King James says, so also by the righteousness of the one, the free gift came upon uh, all men unto justification of life. The free gift came is not in the Greek. They're struggling to make sense of this. And, they, and it's added to help them make sense of what that, uh, right. that passage is saying. And they should not do that. 
Right. Let the word of God speak. This is the NIV. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, that's that's good. So also the result of the one act of uh, the act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. That brings life is not in the Greek. Hmm. Now they're modifying it. They're letting B govern A, not A govern B. Let A rule over B. And I'll show you what happens when you do. You go to the NASB and it says there resulted justification of life to all men. But we know not all men are justified. What is going on? Simple. Discover something. Did you know that God does not know everybody? Get away from me. I never knew you. Did you know that? That's Matthew 7, 23. When you go to, yeah. to uh, Galatians 4, 8, when you did not know God, you served by nature those which are not God. But now that you've come to know God, or rather are known by him, now you come to serve the true and living God. The word know, K-N-O-W, oh, it's interesting. You find out God only knows believers. He never says he knows unbelievers. It's, you go, oh, I get what he's doing. He uses words a little bit differently. Well, how does he use the word all? Well, what I'd like to do at this point is show people around the Bible a little bit. Because there's a verse that says that Jesus died for all. There's actually a verse that says, and I'll show it to you, Jesus died for all. See, Matt, you just refuted yourself. <laughs> and I'll say, I say, thank you for putting your foot in the trap. Now I'm going to set it, okay? And I ask a question. I'll say, have you died? I ask them, are you, have you died? They go, what are you talking about? Have you died? Have you died? Because Romans 6, 6 says we're, we're, we died with Christ. Romans, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 5, you've died with Christ. Romans 6, 1 and 2, you died with Christ. So only the believers have died with Christ, right? All right. So before you get to that closing part, you know, because okay. I feel you, you finna, bow, you, you finna, you finna oh, go. Oh, this like is gonna this. be good. I'm gonna show you. What it does. <laughs> this is good. All right. All right, y'all. So, so those who are listening, remember, you know, I asked them about Romans five eighteen. Okay. Right. The NASB has a reading, and this isn't just a Calvin, uh, a Calvinist perspective. Most scholars, you know, most uh, Greek Greek linguists and things like that, will say the NASB has the better translation of this verse. You know that. Calvinist, non-Calvinist, et cetera. Okay, that's, that's something that's pretty widely accepted. So the question is, the question is, okay, so this verse sounds like it's saying, as through one transgression, talking about Adam, you know, resulted in condemnation of all men. Okay, cool. Adam did something, condemnation of all men. I'm jacked up, Matt's jacked up. We, we need a savior, right? Per Adam, through one act of righteousness, through one deed. Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. There resulted in justification of all men. Now, a person who does not hold a Calvinistic view of scripture might go, okay, well, Matt took all that time. He walked us through the Greek. He did this, he did that. And now we get to the all men part. Okay, but what has Matt been talking about for 40, 50 minutes? What on earth is he talking about? And sure he is God. about to, and, he, and he's about to do, and he, he's about to go there. I just wanted to make sure I laid that foundation in case, Somebody needed that. So take the floor. Amen. You're man. I, I need you as an interpreter. Good stuff. <laughs> <clears throat> so when you get what the word says, it forces you to study. How does God use the word all? He says that only the Christians have died with Christ. Only the Christians were have crucified with Christ. 
we never find any place where it says unbelievers have died with Christ or unbelievers died to the law or unbelievers died to themselves, only believers. So we can make a rule that whenever the Bible talks about anybody having died with Christ in any way that, uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that anyway, how we have died, not physically, but spiritually, okay, we died to ourselves, died to the law, died to sin. It's always and only about the saved. Period. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Who's the all who died? It cannot be the unbelievers. If he died for all, therefore all died. If he died for everyone who ever lived, then everyone who ever lived died. That's not biblical. If all means the group that were given to him by the Father, show you something. Jesus says this in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not all who come to me, the Father will give to me, but all who the Father gives me will come to me. This proves eternal security too later. So there's a group called the all. And he's in verse 89, this is the will of him who sent me that of all he's given me, I lose nothing. Of all he's given me, all the Father's given me. There's a group called the all. I can go back into Romans 5 mm. and some other areas. I'll show you that. When he says, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, it can only mean that it's talking about the group of the believers called the all. Now, for most people, this is radical. They've never heard anything like this. So only the Christians are going to be the, be the ones who are made alive, right? Now, we're made alive in Christ. Only the Christians are made alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. That second all can only be the group given by the Father to the Son. This is proof that in the Word of God, he speaks about two groups called the all. Adam represented everybody. Jesus represented his people. All in Adam and all in Christ, because in Christ and in Adam, in Adam are federal headship terms, representation. Don't have time for all that. So this, that, that, that's how you understand. Then you understand when he says the resulted justification of life to all men, that all is the elect given to him by the, by the son. Otherwise, you have universalism, and you don't get that doesn't work. Right. R real quick, real quick. Uh, can can you mention that scripture? That I I don't think you said. Uh, I thought I heard you say Second Corinthians fifteen, but I don't think that. What did you say? First Second Corinthians, Corinthians fifteen twenty two. First okay. Corinthians fifteen twenty two. In Adam oh, first all die. Yep. That's First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. That's parallel with Romans five eighteen. If you just compare them, you'll see they're it's very parallel. And the other one okay. was 2 Corinthians 5.14, okay. which says, um, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Okay. So the all I who think, died can only be the Christians. Okay. So I think that with the, with, with the point that you're striking home, I think the 2 Corinthians 15 uh, is, is really, really helpful for, for those who are listening. So again, you know, five. No, I said First Corinthians fifteen. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I didn't hear you right. Sorry. Yeah. So, so remember, y'all. 
this, where we're at in this conversation, we started off with Romans 5, 18, and where the Bible is teaching us that through Adam, boom, condemnation, through Jesus, boom, justification, and it says for all men. Matt is walking us through biblical teaching about what all means in this context, okay? Now, I'm going to ask him to zone in on 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit because I feel like that helps us out a little bit. So that was 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and the NASB reads it as, for as in Adam all die, right? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Can you expound on that and highlight sure. that as we bring that point on? There's a phrase I have to introduce you to called federal headship uh -huh. because it's here in the text. Federal headship is the doctrine that the male represents the descendants, not the female. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. She sinned first. She then gave the fruit to Adam and then he sinned. Romans 5.12 says, Romans 5.12 says, sin entered the world through one man, not her, but him, because he was a federal head. He was a representative. So when it says in Adam, it's a designation of his federal headship, of his headship representation ability. And so we were in Adam. And when he fell, we fell in him. We died in him. In Christ is also a term of federal headship, his representation. So we were in Christ. And if you want to see that, you can go to Romans 6, because in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. In Romans 6, 8, for we have died with Christ. How is this possible? The only way it's possible is if he represented us on the cross and federal headship wise, we were represented by him. And then we died with him. We were crucified with him. That had to happen 2000 years ago, but yet we weren't even alive. That's because the father gave the elect to the son, and it makes perfect sense. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam, federal, he's the federal head, all, everybody dies. So also in Christ, all, the group given by the father to the son, will be made alive. Because if made alive is the glorified resurrected body. That's only going to happen with the Christians. The second all can only be the Christians. Awesome. Awesome. So... So, uh, all right, I, I want to go over a couple of scriptures sure. that a person who does not hold to a Calvinistic view, they will have an understanding that the that these scriptures are problematic um, with Calvinistic teaching. So I want to throw them at you and have you teach us uh, what it's actually reading. So the first one I'm going to read is Second Peter chapter two, verse one. And it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, now, many people who don't hold to a Calvinist view of scripture will read that and says, well, this is clearly saying that this is people who are not of God. They are not acting of God. In fact, they are bringing in destructive heresies, destructive uh, false teachings, and they are denying the master who bought them. This is saying that Jesus Christ paid a price for them, and they are denying them, bringing themselves to destruction. Matt Slick hears that and says, what? 
Does first and second Peter allude a great deal to the Old Testament? And uh, the, this is reading from my notes. First Peter 1, 22 through 25, two, chapter two, verses six through nine, two, 24, three, ver, chapter three, verses eight through 12, second Peter two, five through eight, two, 21, and second Peter three, four through six. There's quotes from the Old Testament there. Plus that those are quotes, but there's also allusions where they're referencing without necessarily quoting. So he's obviously referring to the Old Testament a great deal in, the, in Peter, he does that. And if you go to first Peter, for example, I'll show you something. <clears throat> he says, to, the, to those who reside as aliens in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, he's mainly talking to the Jews. And the reason we know this is because he quotes the Old Testament so much. This is there. Now, what's a Jew going to be thinking when he says, these people are denying the Lord who bought them? Might that reflect on something that they're already familiar with in the Old Testament? Right. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 32, 6. Do, do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who bought you, who's made you and established you? Moses was addressing the rebellious Israelites who were turning them from the redemption, uh, who uh, were turning, oh, okay, turning them away from God. He said, is this not the father who bought you? He bought the Jews out of slavery, out of Egypt. But it did not mean that everybody was saved because many of the Jews rebelled. This is the illusion. This is what he's referring to. I believe that this. this is what he's referring to. It doesn't say he bought and they're paid for and then they can deny him because that's impossible. For one thing, Jesus says he will not lose any, John 6, 39. He says the will of the Father is that I lose none of all that he's given me. If someone wants to say this verse means you can lose your salvation, then they're saying that Jesus failed to do the will of the Father. That would have meant Jesus sinned. And you, this is a real problem. You can't say that. And I go with the other verses about, about this. So the only way to make sense of this is to recognize that Peter is most probably referring to the concept of being bought. It doesn't mean salvation, but the concept of being bought in a generic sense, and yet they're still rebelling. You already know this because there's another aspect a lot of Christians don't know about, and it's the aspect of covenant theology. So here's a question. Was Jesus sent to the whole world? The answer is no, he was not. He says in Matthew 15, 23, 24, excuse me, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was not sent to everybody. Covenantally, he was only sent to Israel. Israel Matt the Slick is a Hebrew Israelite, y'all. No, I am not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I'm just saying, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. That's all right. But that's what Jesus said. And the reason he said that is because he's fulfilling the covenant requirements of God and, and the Old Testament requirements. But because the Jews rejected the Messiah, we the Gentiles are then grafted in. So the idea of covenant is in the mind of the Jews and the people listening to Christ, something that we Gentiles today rarely think about. But the word, people don't know this, Old Testament, New Testament, Latin for covenant is testamentum. Old Covenant, New Covenant. So he's talking covenantally about the people of Israel being bought covenantally by the Messiah. It doesn't mean they're saved, but they're denying the one who covenantally took care of them, did all this stuff, bought them, showed them the whole way, and they still reject him, which is what he's talking about in Hebrews 4, 6, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, Hebrews 10, 26. 
What about, uh, let, let's go to Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. And this, said, and this says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because yep. he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead before you uh, give us the exegesis of that again many people uh, or let me not say many people a person who does not hold a calvinistic view of scripture might read this and go okay therefore having overlooked the time of ignorance god is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent so they might go okay well i heard matt slick i heard matt i heard what you said to veda on the show you broke down with all people and all that man you broke it down and you, you had me but then he threw out act 17 30 and it says declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent what does that mean matt help me understand then verse 31 says because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Take right. home, this is Acts 17. Paul's at Mars Hill. And what had happened at Mars Hill about 600 years earlier is there was a plague that was going through Athens. And Epimenides was a, a man in the island of Crete who they said had great wisdom. So they sent for for Epimenides, and he came to Athens, and he had them sacrifice sheep by having them wander around a certain area after two days of night eating, and he should be eating, and the ones that sit down in a certain area, this will offer those to the, uh, to the, to the, uh, uh, the, the altar to the unknown God, the unknown God, because there's all these gods. They had hundreds of gods, okay, and so <clears throat> this is what this is the background. So Paul walks into Athens and says, see that altar you have right there? That was from 600 years ago from Epimenides. That is the altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you, because that's what he says in verse 23, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. He goes on and on and on. He's talking to the Athenians who are not believers. And he says, therefore, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. He's telling them, your ignorance your your condemnation god's overlooking this now he's declaring to men you got to repent you got to turn from serving all these false gods and you got to come to the true living god because there's judgment coming he's giving them the message god commands we repent now wait a minute second timothy 225 god grants repentance hmm. well why would he command if they can't do it on their own there's a reason we abandon humanistic philosophy and go to biblical theology. God says, be holy, for I'm holy. Man, I'm, I'm sorry, Beta. I don't know you that well, but I know you enough to say you cannot be holy. Sorry, man. <laughs> it's sure not can't. happening. I, sh I sure can't. You sure can't. <laughs> and you're coming right back at me, too. It's not happening, all right? But yet, God says, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. What he's saying is the standard of holiness is not you. It's me. That's Amen. why you have to go with this holiness. The standard of righteousness is repentance. You've got to repent. Whether you're able to or not does not mean anything. The right standard is God himself. Not your ability, but God's holiness. He commands everyone everywhere to repent. And this is the message that's going on here at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Very important chapter. People don't understand the context of what happened and why Paul was saying what he was saying. 
So a lot of times what people will do is take John 10, John 1730, or I mean Acts 1730, and they don't look at the context. And I'm not accusing them of being stupid, not, not like that. Just a lot of people just don't know. And so they don't know the context, they don't know what's going on and why Paul said that the way he did in that context. So, and plus, yeah, God does want everybody to repent because that's a standard of righteousness. But yet he grants us repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25 also. Each one of these things we've talked about, I can talk about slowly in depth for an hour. <laughs> right, right. And you have before. <laughs> and I have many times before. Right. All right. I'm going uh, I'm to I'm I'm hit you with two more, and then I think uh, we can wrap up. Sure. Okay. What do you got? Uh, so let's let's uh, go back um, a thousand years or so, uh, a few thousand years to Isaiah 65. All right. And, Isaiah 55 <coughs> or 65? 65. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. And I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to say what a person who doesn't um, subscribe to Calvinistic teaching might think this is saying, and then you're going to correct me. So uh isaiah 65 1 and 2 this is the lord saying i permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me i permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me i said here am i here am i to a nation which did not call on my name i have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good following their own thoughts i'll go back to verse one the Lord saying, I permitted myself to be sought, to be sought, to be found, to be grasped by those who did not ask for me. They were not asking for the Lord your God, but I, I permitted myself to be sought by them and to be found by them. And they wasn't having it. Your response is? Oh, there's a new verse. I'm trying to remember the address. Is not left without witness. <clears throat> is it in 65? It's not in Isaiah. It's in Acts. Okay. Um, um, so my apologies. I, tr I always try to memorize a lot of stuff. Um, okay, good. <sighs> I got stuff coming on here. Uh, sorry, pop-ups on my screens. Contracts are being offered for something. I got to okay, okay. Get my head on straight. So there's a verse in Acts, and I apologize for not having the exact reference, where God has not left a people without witness. Mm -hmm. And let me see if I can go into that. Uh, I can find it. I won't be able to know it. But uh, at any rate, I don't have time just to sit there and look. I think it's fourteen seventeen. Hold up, let me see. You might be right. <clears throat> Yes, that's that's exactly it. You are the man. Come on, Holy Ghost. Come on, Holy you Ghost. You are the man. That's all right. Amen. Holy Ghost. Amen. Hey. Amen. Acts right. fourteen right. seventeen. So sixteen and seventeen actually. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains and heaven, fruitless witness, etc. Now, what is going on here? Well, he's talking about times past and peoples past. Now, I could talk about this for a while, but there's a really good book that goes into it called Eternity in Their Hearts. And what I believe Isaiah 65 is talking about is two possibilities here. One of the Gentiles and one's the rebellious people of Israel. Mm -hmm. If it's a rebellious people of Israel, they're covenantally already aware of God. They know what's going on. They're being rebellious. I permitted myself to be found by you guys. You're rebelling, and there's no problem there. If he's talking about the Gentiles, 
He says, if it's Gentiles, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. That'd be the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 17 through 31, knows, because of the laws written on their heart, they know there's a God. Now, <clears throat> we Calvinists, knowledgeable Calvinists, sorry, but don't say that those people out there back in that day never sought God, were never able to understand some aspect of who God was. God gives a witness. People don't know this. The astrology and the stars, the Hebrew way, had all the, the gospel message in it. The most ancient Chinese records of, of characters writing goes back 6,000 years. The word for boat is a boat with eight, the number eight, and mouths, eight people in a boat. Why is that the case? Just like Noah's Ark. The word for redemption, I believe, is a, a man with a, a lamb over his head. Weird stuff. I didn't go into that. We have the Motoloni tribe that had a prophecy of a white man with white hair. This is in, in uh, Colombia, the jungle people. White, a white man with white hair would have the words of God on banana leaves. Hmm. And so he came in with a Bible. And that's another story. It's called the book Bruchko. The Incas had uh, their old, their old uh, theology was monotheistic. The people of uh, Burma and Indonesia had these records. And some people in uh, some of the African areas, I just re read this. I just finished a book about three days ago. So I'm familiar with this. Where they, the, a lot of these cultures, particularly in India and stuff, there was a prophecy of white people coming Sorry, if you're, you know, not white people are great or better. It's just white people's prophecy uh, because these people were dark skinned and whatever. But white people would come with the book that they had lost, the words of God that they had, their ancestors had lost. Well, there's weird stuff. I didn't go into particulars about how these weird things are and, and these things. It's all over the world. Everybody has ideas of the flood. Everybody has the idea of God. Everybody has it. So he's, people are seeking God but they don't have the special revelation of who Christ is. They can't come to him without that preaching, that teaching, that word, or a direct revelation of God. In fact, people don't know this either. But Al Jazeera has said on more than one occasion that Muslims are converting to Christ by the thousands monthly, all mm -hmm. through the, the, the area, because they're having visions and dreams of Jesus. Wow. So we don't say, Calvinist, that an, an unbeliever just, hey, He's dead. Can't, he won't even think of God. We don't say that. That's written on their hearts, but they can't come to Christ unless that's granted to them. And he works, draws, brings with that place, irresistibly draws them and saves them. That's awesome. That's awesome. That, so, that help? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, very We're much cool. so. We're cool. Calvinists very are cool. So. <laughs> they're, they, they're slick, too. You know? They're slick. <laughs> Not as slick as I am, but yeah, they're slick. slick. <laughs> You know, so I, I actually think, uh, you know, I actually think we're good there because when we... Uh, when no we, First John 2-2? Two, two? Uh, yeah, let's do First John 2-2. Two, two. <laughs> He's of officiation not only for our sins, yeah. but the sins of the whole world. Yeah, you, you know, One minute you know answer. Oh, heart. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. All right. First John 2-2. Two, two, all right. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So y'all heard me expound of the other, on the other scriptures. The non-Calvinistic interpretation for the most part is very similar to how I expounded on the other ones. And Matt Slick is about to say, 
two things. The word propitiation in Greek is halosmos. It means the sacrifice that removes wrath. It's actually accomplished by the propitiatory offer. It doesn't make it possible to remove. It is removed. If the wrath is removed, you can't be held responsible for it. Jesus did that. His propitiatory sacrifice, Colossians 2.14, he canceled the sin debt at the cross. That was a propitiatory sacrifice. If the propitiation is for everybody in the world, if the word world means every individual, then we have a problem. That means everybody has to go to heaven because they've had their, their sin debt paid for and propitiated, and the wrath of God is now removed from them. So the word world there can't mean every individual, has to mean all the nation groups. And there's two Greek words for world, cosmos and oikimenos, and they're used in at least five different senses, local area, the planet, a, a cultural group, uh, all the nations, and, uh, <clears throat> and I forgot the fifth category. So I love when people bring up that verse, and they can also go to 1 John 4.10, that'll also help them out, but I can answer that too. Awesome. Well, since you since you're on a, a Bobby Conway road doing stuff in 60 seconds, you know, uh, let's go ahead real quick. You said John 410. First John 410. First John 410. And this and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yeah. Propitiation, the sacrifice that removes wrath. He's a propitiation for whose sins? The sins of the world, of every individual who ever lived, well, then everybody mm. has to be saved. Mm. Doesn't work that way. Work Colossians 2.14 is the killer verse. He canceled the <laughs> sin at the cross. And then he, he allows us to believe, works that in us, John 6, 28, 29, and we're justified by faith, Romans 3.20. God doesn't make any mistakes. God's got it worked out together. It all makes sense. <clears throat> Now, listeners, sir, ma'am, if you are listening, first of all, I want to thank y'all so much. And I hope you are in your car. Well, given this COVID-19 stuff, I hope you're not in your car going nowhere too far. But wherever you are listening to this, I hope you can join me in giving Matt Slick a round of applause here. Matt, I want to thank you so much for blessing us with your studies and your time you know you do not have to do it we do not you know take that lightly super duper grateful and for those who are and for those who heard my interview with mike holloway you know some of the scriptures we went on were the same so some of them were not and of course i could have talked for 20 hours to both of them right you know but when we get together next week we are going to have uh a uh, 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 conversation, a uh, doctrinal discussion, and we are just going to talk through certain scriptures and we're going to park there. You know, obviously we won't be able to talk about every single scripture and every single thing that, you know, that these two teachers may agree and disagree on. But what we will do is have, you know, maybe, you know, six to eight scriptures and we're going to park there. I'm talking 10 to 20 minutes talking about let's say if it was first john you know chapter two you know the same verse that matt just said and we're going to park there i'm going to let these gentlemen have a discussion about what scripture is actually saying and i am super duper excited and this is 100 percent for those of us who are listening to learn right you know let's learn you know you may or may not be reformed but we should all be informed and i don't care how smart matt slick sounds how smart michael holloway sounds how smart i sound you should still get your own bible read it yourself you know with prayer and go where the bible 
the Bible, you know, not what your pastor, your grandma, or anybody has taught you and you're committed to a certain doctrine. No, read the Bible and actually pray to God, you know, and and, and study to show yourself approved. Amen. Amen. So I you know, so I pray that uh if someone was listening, I'm look, man, you killed it, Matt, and I'm super grateful for your time. Uh is it is it anything that you want to highlight, repeat, or maybe something that you kind of wish you had a chance to say, but the questions that I asked didn't really bring out the opportunity? Is there anything like that that you want to just mention? Just, just what you said, basically. This is not a salvation issue in that if you believe it or don't believe it, it doesn't mean you're saved or not saved. But what we have to do is learn to examine God's word at a deeper level than we think. Words mean what they mean, and God's inspired every single word. And if you dig you will find that your theology will be uh, shattered in some areas and strengthened in others and i can shatter it in other areas too from people don't know what the scriptures teach there's some things that are hard to understand but this is the nature of the word of god i'm not loyal to any group or denomination just jesus christ i try Amen. and represent him accurately and by his grace i am but uh, but if i'm wrong well then i'm wrong but you know Amen. i intend to do it by god's grace to do it right <clears throat> Matt, you have done a sensational job tonight. Thank you so much, my brother. Thank you so much. Where can people where can people find you? Uh, I know I know you have karm.org. Uh, do you have any new books coming out? Is there any uh, books that's related to this subject that you want to promote? Is there anything? Well, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, if you go to Amazon, look up my name, you can find the, uh, the, the series of books. I just released a science fiction novel, uh, actually this week, I think, this week or last week, I can't remember. And um, I've written other novels and stuff like that, but I do theology. And there's uh, outlines on Calvinism, which I'd recommend you get the hard copy, not the Kindle, because this, this outline doesn't lend itself to Kindle very well. But the hard copy has notes and stuff. I actually literally have my notes open. I developed them over 25, 27 years of discussing. Wow. And then I said, hey, these might be publishable. I, I've, I've had people use those notes and just say, oh my goodness, it, 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 is, it just destroys other arguments. There's so much there. <clears throat> well, to oh, God be the glory. Well, to you know, at, to God be all the glory. And as we close out, we say this at the very end, because this is so true. Is he a real one? Yes, he is. And the he that we're talking about is Jesus, y'all. A-A.